This is 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you want, you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And he commits, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. And then would you please pray with me? Father, as Seth just reminded us, we do want to ascribe praise to you today. And God, yeah, we do want to say thank you for the rain that you've blessed us with. Or just seeing everything so green all around us, seeing Lake Kachuma full of water and creek beds running. It's just a beautiful, beautiful reminder of how you sustain your creation. God, after you created the world in the beginning, you you declared that it was good. And Lord, this beauty that's all around us and this wonderful world that we live in and all of its natural resources are just such a beautiful gift. Remind us of your good and loving heart toward your creation. God, we also thank you for your holy word. We think of Psalm 19 where first David reminds us to look at the creation, and then he pivots and reminds us to look at your word. Because your word is powerful and your word is alive and it's capable of making wise the simple and reviving the hearts of people like us. So God, as we are turning our attention now to the Holy Scriptures, Father, we ask that you would speak to us. God, that you would 
minister to each and every person here today. God, we pray that you would make clear to us what we have just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that, God, we wouldn't just be filled with information today. That is not the purpose of what we're doing. But, God, you would use your word by your spirit to transform us, that there would be transformation taking place. God, apart from you and your grace and your word, we are lost, we're confused, we're wandering, and we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, by your grace, we're made alive in Christ and we're given a firm foundation and a guide for our lives through your word. So God, we are excited to hear from you today and we just plead with you, God, use your word to make us into the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to church. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now, if I were to ask you, or let's reverse it, if you were to ask me, Pastor Daniel, what is the most memorable chapter in the books of Samuel? I think my mind would go to probably 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is where David fights Goliath, right? I mean, that's such an epic, famous, well-known story, David fighting Goliath. Um, and if it wasn't that one, I, I probably would then gravitate towards 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is the famous account of David, David and Bathsheba. Um, between those two accounts, you kind of have like David's greatest success story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and then David's probably greatest failure with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so again, for the question, what's the most memorable chapter in the books of Samuel? I'd probably go to one of those two places. I mean, would you agree with that? Am I missing anything? Are there any other contenders for like the most standout chapters in the books of Samuel that you can think of? Either there's not, or you guys are scared of your pastor. So I just hope that means it's not, that, that those are the ones that stand out. I think they are. They're kind of like obvious contenders for that. But if you were to change the question up and you were to say, Pastor Daniel... What is the most significant chapter in the books of Samuel? There is no better place we could turn than 2 Samuel chapter 7 and what we've just read here this morning. This chapter, believe it or not, is hands down the most significant chapter in the books of Samuel. And it's arguably one of the most significant chapters in the entire Old Testament. That's how important the words we just read are. Does that capture your attention this morning? I hope so. Um, and, and trust me, I'm not overblowing this. I'm not making this too big of a deal. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. And the reason why 2 Samuel chapter 7 is so unbelievably significant is because what was just read for us this morning in this chapter is what's known as the Davidic Covenant. And it's one of the most important moments throughout redemptive history. What I mean by redemptive history is God's unfolding plan of salvation that, that becomes clear to us throughout the Bible. When you begin the Bible in the book of Genesis, very early on, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sin. And after they sin, in chapter 3, verse 15, God says this. This is Genesis 3, 15. 
I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman. So God is talking to Satan here. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right at the beginning of the Bible, after we've sinned, there is a plan of salvation that gets, uh, gets announced. God announces it there in Genesis 3.15 and we learn there that God's plan of rescuing humanity is going to come through a person who will ultimately crush the serpent's head. So we know salvation's coming through a person, but then you get to chapter 12 of Genesis, one of the other most significant chapters in the Old Testament. Because in Genesis chapter 12, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. And when you're in kids ministry, you learn about Father Abraham who had many sons and I am one of them and so are you. And what we sing about Father Abraham because he's so unbelievably important. God in Genesis chapter 12 establishes a covenant with Abraham. Here's Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So first in Genesis, salvation is coming through a person. In Genesis three, now in chapter 12, we come to realize that God's plan of salvation, of redeeming humanity from their sins will come through a family and it's the family of Abraham. Fast forward to Moses arriving on the scene. And in the book of Exodus, God gives Moses the law, right? The 10 commandments. And God establishes a covenant with Moses. And we learn there that the law that God gives helps to form a nation. And so we learn that God's promised salvation was gonna come through a person and then through a family and then through a nation called Israel. And now the next move in the story is 2 Samuel chapter seven. What we've just read today. And through the promise that God makes to David in this chapter, the scriptures are bringing into greater focus exactly how God intends to rescue humanity. So when you go to the promise to to Abraham, that through you and through your offspring, I will bless all the families of the earth. Now we're realizing that that blessing is going to flow through a Davidic king who rules over the people of God, the people of Israel. But the chapter doesn't begin there. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll see all of that in just a moment. The chapter does not begin with what God promises to do for David. It begins with what David desires to do for God. So we need to see that first to get the context. This chapter begins in the first three three verses with, David's desire to bless God. Look at verse one again. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So can you, can you imagine the scene here? David has, has, in the last couple of chapters, he's been established as the king over Israel. And in chapter five, he had a royal palace built for him in his new royal capital city, which is Jerusalem. 
And there were the most amazing cedars from Lebanon that got shipped down there by the king of Tyre. And he sent his craftsmen and his architects and everybody down to Jerusalem to build this palace for David. And now David is sitting in his house. And he's, he's looking at this beautiful home that's been built for him. And he's recognizing, man, I have peace from my enemies right now. My kingdom is at rest. And suddenly a staggering thought occurs to the king. He says, oh my goodness, this is so peculiar that I live in this beautiful house made of cedar and all the while just across the street, God and his ark, God's throne is dwelling in a mere tent. And so David feels like this is not right and he desires to build the Lord a permanent house. I mean, if David's house was glorious and splendid, How much more should God's house, where God's earthly throne, the Ark of the Covenant was, how much more splendid should that be? So he desires to build this permanent house to bless the Lord. And Nathan, the prophet, encourages him to go for it. In verse 3, he says to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And right up front here, I just love that David, the king of Israel, does not just take the blessings of God and run with them. And just say, man, my life is awesome. God has done so much for me and I'm just going to enjoy my blessings. No, as David reflects on all the blessings that he's received, this palace, this throne that he doesn't deserve, uh, victory over his enemies, what do we find him do? Well, his mind and his heart move toward blessing God. And it's good for us as Christians to regularly consistently make a practice of stopping and just taking inventory of the blessings that God has given to us. I wonder if you have that practice in your life. Because here's what happens is you and I get really good at reflecting on the blessings that God has given to us. It will stir up within our hearts a desire to bless the Lord. It's the way it works. Here's David speaking of this connection in Psalm 103 verses 1 and 2. David writes, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. For David, the catalyst for praising God and desiring to live a life that blessed the Lord, a life that flowed out of his soul, out of the recesses of his being, in an effort to bless God, The catalyst for that for David was all the benefits that God had given him. And he goes on in Psalm 103 to just rattle off a ton of them. As he thought about how blessed he was because of his relationship with God, he desired to bless the Lord. Well, what kind of things have we been blessed with if you're a Christian here this morning? Number one greatest blessing is salvation. That's right, our salvation. And you know what's interesting? The Apostle Paul, he actually builds the same connection that David did in Psalm 103 in Romans chapter 12 between us being aware of the blessing of our salvation and how that should lead us to live a life that wants to bless God. Here's Romans 12.1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I mean, look at what he's saying here. He's making an appeal for them to do something. What does he want Christians in Rome to do? 
to offer or present their bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. So that's the appeal. I want you to do this, but what's the basis for the appeal? What does Paul think is going to cause them to actually say, you know what, giving my life to God and offering my life as a living sacrifice to the Lord makes sense and is worth it? It's by the mercies of God. The appeal is the mercies of God. And Paul has just spent 11 chapters in the book of Romans, just kind of taking like the dump truck of God's blessings and just pouring it out on the church at Rome. I mean, if you read Romans 1 through 11, you're just overwhelmed by the extensive nature of our salvation that God has given to us in Christ. And Paul gets to chapter 12 and he pivots and he says, listen, in light of all of that great news, all of the immense blessings that God has given to you in Jesus that you did not deserve in light of all of that, here's how you should respond. You should say, Lord, my life belongs to you. My life is a living sacrifice. Obviously, sacrifices are normally dead, but we're living sacrifices. God is animating our lives to actually serve him and live for him and be a blessing to him. So our salvation is number one. We could go on though. When you think about the blessings of God, we could think of our health if you have relatively good health, our families if you've been blessed with a family or friendship or work or a great church, or you could just go on and on and on. And again, it is a wonderful practice for us as Christians to routinely stop like David did as he had a moment of rest and say, what has the Lord done for me? How has God shown blessing to me? And you'll find that your heart desires to bless the Lord. Well, we would expect now that the very next thing we would read in this text would be, and so David began to construct the temple, right? He wants to do it. He tells God's prophet he wants to do it. And the prophet says, go for it. The Lord is with you. So we would think that he'd get started building, but that's not what happens. Look again at verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to, to dwell in? That night, God comes to the prophet Nathan and he delivers a message to Nathan that he wants Nathan to go and share with David. This message in its entirety, as we're going to see, is actually God's promise to bless David. So that's what the rest of this chapter is about. We saw David's desire to bless God. Now we're looking at God's promise to bless David. That's verses 4 through 17. But God here, in this message that he wants Nathan to relay to David, he starts with a question that I read there at the end of verse 5. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now obviously you can hear that question in different ways. One way to hear that question is to hear it in the form of a request. Like God saying, hey, Nathan, go tell David, would you please build me a house, David? So you could hear it as a request from the Lord. Yeah, please, David, build me a house. This would be awesome. But we know that's not the way that God means it as the chapter goes on. I mean, look at verses six and seven. God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what's going on here? 
God's saying it more like, would you build me a house to dwell in? David, he reminds me, I've never, since the time that I, I called you a people and delivered you out of Egypt, I've never dwelt in a house built of cedar. I've always been moving around in a tent through all of your wanderings in the wilderness. That's where my ark was, dwelling in a tabernacle or a, or a tent. And then he goes on to say, and did I ever rebuke any of the other leaders of Israel in the past because they didn't stop and build me a temple? It's a rhetorical question. David knows the answer, like, actually, you didn't, Lord. And so, so God here is making a point. He's saying, David, I don't want you to feel any anxiety over the fact that the ark of God is in a tent. God is not worried at this point in salvation history about how nice or unnice. Is that a word, unnice? No, probably not. That flowed off my tongue. It felt really good, but then it didn't sound like that was probably going to be found in the dictionary. But, but God did not care how nice or, now I don't have a better word, unnice uh, his, his house was. And he doesn't want David to be worried about that either. And so now God's going to actually totally flip the script for David here. And God is going to pivot away. This is so huge. He's going to pivot away from what David intended to do for him to now what he intends to do for David. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So here comes the real announcement. Hey, start off by like questioning what David wants to do and reminding him, I don't need him to do that. And then he says here in verse 8, Now therefore, Nathan the prophet Thus you shall say to my servant David. So, so here comes the big point, the big message. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Let's stop there. Let's pause for a moment. David, David, I want you to know something. I'm the one who took you from being a lowly shepherd, basically overlooked by your dad and all your big brothers from a sort of insignificant family. I took you from that. And now look where you're at, man. I've made you the king of Israel. And not only that, but I have been with you every single step of the way, David. It was ups and downs and it was mountaintops and valleys and you were on the run and you were, you were a general over armies. You've done it all, you've seen it all and I never ever was not with you. And I've brought you to this place now where I've cut off all of your enemies. So quick little history lesson. Go back through your story, David. And then God is going to reveal at this point that he intends to do so much more for his King David. And the scope of God's plans and God's blessings for David are staggering. Listen carefully. Let's get back to verse 9. And the second part of it, we'll pick up there. It says, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, we're going to go through the three different aspects of this covenant, of this promised blessing that God is going to give to David. But we need to know at the outset that each of these promises that we're going to talk about had a partial fulfilling in David's lifetime. But they only found their full expression in a future figure from the line of David, who, as we'll see, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that as we go through these blessings. God's promising things to David, and they are partially realized in his own lifetime. But there is no way that they get fully realized until a future figure from the line of David comes, who, as we'll see, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three pieces to this promise. You could break it down more specifically, perhaps, but let me give you the three main contours of it. Verse 9, number 1, here's what God says, David, I am going to give you a great name. I am going to make you one of the great ones on the earth. Now, this was partially fulfilled in David's lifetime. In his own lifetime, David became renowned and he became feared. If you jump over to 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 17, listen to what the author says. And the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. So in his own lifetime, he was given a great name. All of the surrounding nations knew David is king in Israel, and there was some serious fear in their hearts because he was a powerful king in his own right. But this promise of a great name was certainly forward-looking. For it is only in light of Jesus that David's name would continue to live on till even now. 3,000 years later. We are talking about David today. We sing worship songs to God with lines in them that refer to David today. David's story has been printed in a book that has been printed more than any other book in the history of the world. And listen, it's not just us that are talking about David here today. There are literally millions of people spread all across planet Earth right now that love Jesus and are following Jesus and consider David to be a great one. And we keep him in high renown. But that is only because of his connection to his greater son, as we're going to see, the Lord Jesus Christ, who really put David's name on the map, so to speak. So David has a great name, relatively speaking, but he's given a promise here that's going to outlive his own earthly life. The second aspect of this, notice in verses 10 and the beginning of 11, is that God says, I'm not just going to make you great, David, and give you a great name, but I am also going to give you and your people a permanent place of permanent rest. Now back in verse 1, we read that the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Do you see that there in verse 1? God had given him rest from all of, it says, his surrounding enemies. But that must have been a partial rest or a relative rest because 
Now here we are down in these verses and God is promising a future rest from all of their enemies in verse 11. So David was at rest in one sense, but now God is saying, hey buddy, I've got bigger plans for you. I am going to plant my people in a place where no violent people attack them anymore. They are not disturbed anymore and I am going to set you guys at peace. So there is a rest still to come for the people of God. This was not accomplished in David's lifetime. In fact, after David came and went, Israel had some of her darkest days still ahead. Israel was going to be overthrown. First by the Assyrians, later the Babylonians. They were going to be uprooted, even though God says here that there's going to come a day where he's going to plant them. They were uprooted from their homeland and carried off captive. And so we know that it is only when Jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth that all wars are going to cease and that the people of God will ultimately and eternally experience the rest that God is promising here. Well, let's move to the third. What's the third aspect of this promise, this covenant? Well, it's the rest of the verses we've got to read here. It's 11 through 17. But God is promising David an eternal house. And now, friends, we are coming to the biggest surprise of all. I mean, David must have been floored when Nathan came in and said, man, God has done all this stuff for you already, but you ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. He's going to give you a great name. He's going to give you a permanent place with permanent rest. He must have been floored, but I'll tell you what, when, when, when Nathan started saying what's going to be said here at the end of verse 11, his jaw must have hit the floor. It's unbelievable. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now it's here that we get to the greatest irony in the entire chapter. David desired to build God a house. And there's a word play here. Because now David says, or God says to David, I know you wanted to build me a house, but guess what? Here's my plan. I'm going to build you a house. And David obviously was thinking brick and mortar, like a building, a temple. God's not talking about that. That's what David was thinking, that kind of a house. God's talking about a house in the sense of a dynasty or a royal line. He says, listen, when you die... When your time is done here on earth, I am going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. David's kingdom is going to continue. His children will have their thrones established. So this is very different than Saul, the first king in Israel. When Saul died, he was cut off. This gets referred to here. His entire line was cut off and David came in and became king. But now God says that will never, ever, ever happen to your royal line. And that is the first twist here in this promise. Look at verse 13 again though. It's a very interesting little footnote here. It says, he shall build a house for my name. You can almost just blow by it. 
and get really fixated on the fact that his kingdom's going to go on forever. But he says, you're going to have a son. He's going to sit on his throne and he's going to build a house for my name. So let's just pause about thinking about this eternal kingdom for a moment. Let's think about this idea of a house, a temple. God says it will be built. It's going to come. The temple will be built. There will be a house for my name established, but it's going to come through your son. And what that means is that that David's desire that he had to see a temple built for the Lord was not wrong. It was just that David was not the right guy for the job. In fact, what's actually true is that David's desire to build God's house or temple was not only not a bad desire, it was a deeply good desire. David wanted God's presence to dwell with his people forever. And so David wanted a permanent home for God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant, right there in Jerusalem at the center of Israel's life. So this is a good and this is a godly desire. And God would allow that desire to come to fruition. But like I said, it just would not happen through David. Now, why didn't David get to build the temple? Well, we're given an answer to that elsewhere. Here's 1 Chronicles 28.3. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. So at least in part, the reason why God says you're not the guy to do that job is because David was a man of war. He was the king that God used to establish this earthly kingdom, the nation of Israel there. And he had lots and lots of blood on his hands. And so it would be his son Solomon, who interestingly is a man of perpetual peace, who would build God's house. God's house, the temple, was a place for prayer. It was a place for peace, where people could find peace with God. And so Solomon was the right man for the job. And he did it. He built a magnificent temple right there in Israel. But family, here's the crazy thing. Even Solomon's temple was only temporary. It was a temporary dwelling place for God. It ultimately failed to live up to the hopes and the vision that Solomon had for it, to be a house of heartfelt worship for the Lord and a house of reconciliation for all of the nations. And so eventually, Solomon's temple that he had built was destroyed. But here's the key that we must not miss. The destruction of Solomon's temple did not prevent God's presence from being with his people. In fact, we now know that it was only because of the destruction of Solomon's temple that the way was opened for God's presence to be even nearer to his people. 2,000 years ago, the scriptures teach us that God sent his one and only son to this earth. And here's how John describes it in his gospel, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Many of you know that that Greek word for dwelt there is literally tabernacled. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here is the incredible twist of events that nobody could have ever foreseen when God was dwelling in a tent and later a temple, that there would come a day where God would dwell in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. What John the gospel writer is telling us here with this verse 
is that just as God's presence was once located in a tabernacle that wandered around the wilderness, and then later a temple there in Jerusalem, God's presence was now 2,000 years ago right there in front of them, encapsulated or located inside the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So God's presence was here with us in this earth. And now that Jesus has ascended back to heaven, he has not left us without God's presence. And this is perhaps the most incredible piece of all of it. But the Bible actually tells us, brace yourself, the Bible actually tells us that if you are a Christian, if you have received grace and truth through Jesus Christ, the scriptures actually tell us that you, right now sitting in your seat, are the temple of God. Meaning that God's presence in a very real, profound, and yes, I will say mystical or mysterious sense, God's presence right now as I'm speaking to you is located in a unique sense inside of you. This should cause all of us to just go, I mean, this is insane. But this is what the Bible tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul has to, listen to the way he says this. He's like, or do you not know this? Because this is just so astonishing. Like people would hardly believe it. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is where? Within you, whom you have from God. So you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul's argument goes like this to the church at Corinth. And in context, he's writing about sexual sin, which was rampant in the church there. And he's saying, listen to me, you guys. Do you, are you not aware of this? Your body right now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The living God resides inside of you. And therefore, we need to live holy and pure lives because the, the Spirit of God is in us. And you and I have been bought with a price. And it was the precious blood of Jesus, God's own Son. You are God's temple What manner of life ought we to live then, my friends? I mean, think about the effect that God's presence had on the temple in the Old Testament. We got a glimpse of this last week with Uzzah. When Uzzah touched the ark of God and God struck him dead because he was a sinful man, not cleansed and atoned for. So God's presence in the temple and under the Old Covenant had a purifying effect. It was a holy place and the scriptures call us as the temple of the living God to pursue holiness in our lives. You are the temple of God. But as Christians, we're not just God's temple or God's dwelling place individually, also corporately. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, what's important here is that the you there is not singular, it's plural. So a good translation would be, uh, do you not know that y'all we are in Texas, y'all are God's temple. So now it's a corporate aspect of, uh, to this, that, that together, corporately, we all are God's temple. Peter makes the same point. Paul makes the same point in Ephesians. But here's, here's Peter's statement in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones 
are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you have the picture in your mind? This spiritual house, every single one of us are like a single stone in the wall that builds up this spiritual house. And so you and I collectively, as the people of God, are the temple of the Lord. And the scriptures actually teach us that as we gather together as one body worshiping the Lord, that he's with us in a unique and profound way, that he is present among his people as we gather and worship the risen Christ. Family, we are the temple right now, individually and corporately, of the living God. Right now, he dwells in us and among us, and he will continue to do so until that day when Christ returns and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and there is no longer a need for any temple. This is how the whole book ends. When you go to the far right side of this thing, at the end of the book of Revelation, here's chapter 21, verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So we're present in eternity with God, but drop down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. That's how the story ends. We are present with God, just as present as we are with each other right now in glory forever. And so friends, I say all of that to say this to you this morning, that you and I right now are living in an experience that David couldn't have possibly dreamed up. He was so concerned with just getting the ark to Jerusalem and building God a house so that God's throne could be there in the midst of his people. And yet you and I are living right now with God seated on the throne of our hearts, living in us right here and right now. It's amazing. It's grace upon grace. And now we get to the biggest surprise of all and the second big twist. Look back at verse 13. This temple will be built, but what does he go on to say? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It won't end. Therefore, the promises here belong to Solomon, David's heir, and all future sons of David who would sit on the throne. What are those promises? Look at verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity or sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So God is saying to David, listen, to your descendants, your line, your royal line, I will be a father to them and they will be sons to me. There will be a unique relationship between God in heaven and all future kings who sat on David's throne. And when they mess up, and they will, God, like a good father, is going to discipline those sons. But here's what he will never, ever, ever do. He will never remove his steadfast love from them. That word there in Hebrew is hesed. We as a church learned a lot about that when we studied the book of Ruth. It is such an important word. Hesed describes God's covenant love toward his people. It is his undying, unconditional promise to be faithful to the end to his people. And he says, I will never, ever remove my hesed 
from your descendants who sit on this throne. Just in case there's any confusion, the word forever is repeated three times right here. Verse 13, he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What is it? Forever. Then down in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I can almost hear the voice of the police chief in the sandlot. Remember when they asked him, like, how long does the beast have to be locked away for? Forever. Forever. Added for emphasis. So here, the point needs to be not lost on us that God will never, ever revoke this covenant and David will always have a son seated on God's throne, ruling over God's people. And for several centuries, the Jews were experiencing the literal fulfillment of this. Every century or or generation from generation, they had a, a physical king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. But after only a few hundred years, the Jewish people were conquered and they were taken into captivity, as I said earlier. And so it became much less clear how this promise would actually be fulfilled. And yet God continued telling his prophets that this covenant still stood, despite how things appeared, how it had seemed like God had revoked the covenant and taken away his his said from his people, God continued to remind the prophets, no, 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 no. The covenant still stands. There's a king coming. He's going to sit on the throne of David forever. And ultimately through the prophet Isaiah, God revealed that a baby was coming into the world. God incarnate to bring all of these promises to fruition. And I know it's only March right now, but for a moment it's Christmas. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you see all the connections there between Isaiah 9, 7 and 2 Samuel chapter 7? It's the throne of David again. It's an eternal kingdom. There is peace that is going to be established through this child that will be born. And so, family, to bring all of this full circle for us this morning, when the angel Gabriel comes to this young, this young woman named Mary, a virgin woman, and he announces to her the most unbelievable news human ears could ever hear, that she, though a virgin, would conceive a child. Look at what is said about this child. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. And behold, the angel says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I want to leave... These verses up there, this is going to really tax. Is that Ben back there serving at CG today? This is going to make it real hard for you. Follow me here for a moment. But 
I want us to see the direct fulfillment of the promises of 2 Samuel 7 with what's said here in Luke 1. So Ben, we're going to keep Luke 1 up here, but you might back up a screen or two here. But look at the way that this is directly fulfilled. So if we go back here into our text in 2 Samuel 7, remember in verse 9, look down at verse 9, it says of David, he will be great. And now what is said about this child, it says, I think it's the next verse here. Let's try 32. He will be great. There's a tying in to verse 9 of our chapter. Notice also, he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be God's Son. That corresponds to verse 14 of our chapter where it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And then finally, is it up there? Give to him. So the next one, verse 33. His kingdom and of his kingdom, there will be no end corresponds to verse 16 where we read, in this promise to David, your throne shall be established forever. Great job, Ben. The New Testament writers understand that what God promised to David was realized in part during his lifetime, but is realized in full through his greater son, Jesus. So while God promises to be a father to David's descendants, he would someday be a father in truth to one of David's descendants, the Lord Jesus. And while David's name was made great, Jesus has given a name that is above all names. While David's people were given a permanent place in Jerusalem, relatively speaking, Jesus' people are given a truly permanent place in heaven where he has gone to prepare a place for us. And while David led Israel into peace and rest from her enemies, Jesus defeated sin and death for all time for those who trust in him. And while David's line ruled in Israel literally for centuries, only through Jesus does his throne continue throughout all of eternity. And so as we close, I just want us to notice the implications of what we've just discovered. And the implications are many, but one of them is this. There is only one kingdom that will last forever. And it is the kingdom that belongs to Christ. Every nation, every earthly kingdom, every people group is going to come and go. We've seen many empires and many kingdoms come and go. And there is coming a day when the curtain will close on the history of humanity our history as we know it here on planet earth. But when that day comes, there is one kingdom that will still continue marching forward. And it is the kingdom of Jesus. God Almighty has established the kingdom of his son forever. It will never ever end. And so the question that we all should be grappling with is am I a citizen of that kingdom? That has no end. There are likely some here today who have joined us and you're not a Christian. You don't consider Jesus to be your Lord. You certainly wouldn't be able to say, yeah, I'm living my life for Jesus. You're not a Christian and you're with us and we're so thankful for that. But please know 
that if that describes you, then whatever it is that you're living for, because we're all living for something and we're all living for someone, but please know that whatever you are living for right now will not last. Whatever it is that you're putting your hope in, whatever it is that you're building your life on right now, it will come to an end and it will leave you hopeless and with nothing secure. The famous words of C.T. Studd capture this well. I'll put it on the screen as we close. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, it's true. His is the only kingdom that goes on forever. And so the most important thing in the world for all of us is that we become part of Christ's kingdom. And guess what? He's made a way for it. He offers citizenship in his kingdom to anyone and everyone who would come to their senses and say, I'm done living for other things. I am going to live for God's own son, King Jesus, and put my faith and trust in him and follow him. And for those of us who have done that, you are a citizen of heaven according to the New Testament. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.